with my first deal using my you know own funds, I'm like, okay, let me buy these. And I figured I wouldn't lose everything, you know, because it was four deals. But if one of them went sour, one went south, hey, it's cost of doing business. Instead of paying $15,000 to some real estate guru to teach me training, hey, I'm going to learn the hard knocks and go through this process. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in today. We're talking about note investing. We get into the down and dirty of the stories, the experience of an experienced note investor who is our guest today, Chris Seveny. And today, you know, Chris, Chris is a very experienced note investor. Okay. He came from busy professional background, working in, in the real estate industry, actually, and then started investing in notes. We talk about why he went for notes and then built it up so that now he's got a fantastic note investing business where he buys notes with passive investors through funds that he runs. And today we talk about some uh, horror stories, note investing horror stories that he had and very instructive because you know there's so many folks out there in the real estate investing space only talking about their wins. And today we're talking about, I think, better things to learn from, which are tough lessons that Chris had to learn that hopefully we don't have to learn if we want to invest in notes. If you're not familiar with note investing and you're looking for a way to passively invest in real estate, notes are, in my opinion, one of the best. If if they're the right fit, you know they're one of the best ways to invest in real estate for folks out there. So something to consider. And today you're going to learn from one of the big experts in the field, Chris 70. So I learned a lot today and I'm sure you will as well. If you do enjoy the show, take a second, go to your favorite podcast app, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, drop a subscribe on there. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you're an Apple user and you enjoy the show, please take a quick second, go to the Apple Podcast app, leave us a rating and review, five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. Uh, it helps us do better in their algorithm. That helps other people learn about the show. And it helps me feel good about what you guys are getting out of the show, what we're doing here. And uh, I appreciate it so, so much. I am your host, Taylor Vote. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I'm not a note investor, but that's not because there's anything wrong with notes. It's just not the strategy that I choose. But I think for folks looking to earn a passive return in real estate, notes are really one of the best options out there. For some people, it's better than buying rentals. And uh, you're going to learn today about some stories from one of the industry leading experts in the note space. So without any further ado, here we go with Chris Seveny. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to talk with you. We're going to talk about note investing, your whole journey in the note investing space and, and what you do now. Uh, for our listeners out there, can you tell us a bit you know, about your background? I, I love your your story of getting into the note investing space and and what drove you in. So, you know, let's dive in and, and rewind the clock and learn about where Chris came from. Yeah. Uh, first again, thanks for having me on. And, you know, very similar to many of the real estate investors out there who are probably watching this today, uh, you try and find a niche that you enjoy and or want to get in. And for me, at first, it started with trying to buy and hold rentals. Unfortunately, I'm in, not fortunately, but unfortunately, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, which has a very high cast, cost of capital for acquisition but also trying to find the deals and having a wife, full-time job, kids, 
Uh, it made it's very difficult to try and find these deals as they come up. Uh, you literally have to go look at them that day or the following day, and you just didn't have the time. And we we're trying to scale, you know, a real estate side business uh, while working. And I stumbled upon uh, note investing, and I had been in real estate for almost twenty years in real estate construction development. Never knew it existed. And most people, you know, were hearing note investing. What is that? And you know, hit pause, rewind, and hear it again. Uh, but it was almost twenty years, and then you know, I again didn't realize it was out there. You know, it's a type of investment strategy where you buy loans from banks or hedge funds, and we'll talk more about that. But what was great about it is you can do it from anywhere in the world as long as you have an internet connection at any time during the day. So early in the morning, late in the evening, when I had you know kids are sleeping, wife is asleep or whatnot, I could you know start doing some investing, which on other types of real estate investment strategies, you really can't. So that's why note investing really fit that niche uh, for me. Nice. It is interesting how note investing is, is a great way to invest in real estate. And it's like a, a hidden secret or that you know folks outside of the real estate investing space don't realize, or maybe even within real estate don't realize is, is available. And uh, I think folks out there today can can likely relate to uh, the problems that you had with with finding deals and getting to them before they were snapped up, and then also with having the time in the day to uh, manage your investments. Now, can you tell us about that? Those first few investments of of becoming a note investor and what you did, how you found your deals, how you you know put them together, all that great stuff. How you really got that first foot in the water? Yeah. So it was about after six months of. Uh, learning about the business. I personally believe it's not something you can learn overnight or within the first month, just like any other type of, you know, you know enough, probably get yourself in trouble. But, you know, after about six months of learning, and I was learning through, you know, website Bigger Pockets, there's some uh, YouTube channels out there that at the time people could go on and kind of learn and really network. Network is key component of this business because it is very small. There's not a lot of people in this niche. So you want to network them and you get their contacts or speak to people. And then they can kind of give you some deal flow and a few other you know, interesting insights, uh, attorneys and things like that to use uh, from that perspective. So after about six months, uh, I finally you know, pulled the trigger and I got started uh, with about 25 grand. So it's something that you don't need a huge cost of capital. I bought some uh, loans that had low balances left on them uh, down in uh, Alabama and uh, Mississippi uh, in, in states in the Southeast. Uh, so, you know, kind of started along those lines. And the challenge is with uh, this business, it's similar to, I say, if you're a fix and flipper, there's not a book out there that can teach you how to flip a house. You know, it's, you can, you understand the steps and processes, but there's no like, Hey, let me take this book off the shelf and figure out how to, you know, flip a property. No investing is the same. It's a learn by doing business that you really need to just get involved. And when you get going, it is a little interesting because you rush, rush, rush to buy an asset. Then after you buy it, you kind of like have to sit and wait for about 45 days. So it's kind of like, you know, when you buy a house, you know, basically you buy it, you want to get going on it um, and start renovating it. It's kind of like getting under agreement and waiting 45 days to close. Note investing is almost similar where, you know, you have to put, put a little pause on that as well. But, um, nice. Well, I think that's, you know, in, in any real estate investing endeavor, no matter what asset class you're in, I think the first deal is the most difficult, but also kind of the most important to to really 
get you started. And you started with, I think you said $25,000. How did you, you mention your network is so important. How did you really find that deal? Was it just through networking and building relationships yeah. and you know, how did you make yeah, it happen? Exactly. So in note investing, there's several key members of your team. Um, besides, you know, you want attorneys in the states that you're buying these notes in, uh, in case you have to take legal or just make sure what you're buying is actually, you know, what you think it is. Um, and then there's companies called servicers, who are the companies that collect these collect the payments on your behalf. So I'm not having, you know, if you were my borrower, I'm never talking to you. There's an interme- intermediary called a servicer. So you start with networking with those two groups and most servicers actually have, you know, an online portal that they'll sell assets or they'll have some because, you know, they're servicing loans for thousands of investors. So a lot of times it's easier. You pick up phone, call a servicer. Hey, I want to sell these 10 assets. You know, can you put them out to the group? So they'll put them out. And this was a, a fund out in New York who had put out, uh, we call them tapes, which is a pool of assets called a tape that had probably about 150 assets on them. And, uh, you know, I bid on like eight of them and got four of them accepted and uh, kind of rolled from there. And the other way, like you mentioned networking, uh, I was listening to a lot of podcasts at the time and it was around the holidays. And one of the uh, larger investors in the space, I listened to who he was thanking. And, you know, because he was thanking people on the holidays, um, I think it was actually Thanksgiving, but he was thanking a lot of people. And I started writing down these names and I Googled them and it was, oh, hedge fund manager with this, hedge fund manager this. And I just shot him an email and say, hey, I heard you, you know, this person thanking you um, and so forth. And, you know, I follow him and, you know, and so forth. Um, it looks like you, you know, have assets if you ever, you know, have some to sell and stuff. And they're like, oh, sure. You know, yeah, here's a <laughs> list. I mean, it's similar to in real estate, like wholesalers. I mean, wholesalers, they want to grow their list as big as possible um, because the more bandwidth they get out, the better chance of it selling. It's no different in the note space with these people who look to sell. The more people they put it out to, the better chance, you know, assets may move. So they're, you know, they go through kind of a little bit of vetting process to make sure, you know, who you are and stuff. But it's not, I mean, once they realize, you know, look you up real quick and stuff, it's, you know, very simple. <laughs> That's funny. That's very, uh, that's a great insight. Number one, and and number two, I mean, being resourceful and and knowing what you know, how you can benefit others, and how you can benefit yourself by helping others get you know to accomplish what they want to uh, accomplish. And I'd like to to learn more about how you you scaled up. You do the, do those first few deals. How did they go? I mean, maybe we don't even want to go to that. Why did you buy those uh, low balance loans before we move away from those first ones? You said they have a low balance. Why did you pick those as opposed to something else with a, a higher balance? Uh, the acquisition price. So I was figured, hey, look, this is my first go around. And I was using retirement money from a solo 401k. A lot of people use a self-directed IRA or solo 401k. And with my first deal using my you know, own funds, I'm like, okay, let me buy these. And I figured I wouldn't lose everything you know, because it was four deals. But if one of them went sour, one went south, Hey, it's cost of doing business. Instead of paying fifteen thousand dollars to some real estate guru to teach me training, hey, I'm going to learn the hard knocks and go through this process. And of those first four, every you know they all panned out well. Uh, one of them was a little rocky to, to say the least, but ended up still panning out well. Uh, made money on them, and after that, I just continued to you know build my portfolio. And after I got you know, 10, 12 assets under my belt. I looked to scale a little bit more, uh, started reaching out to some investors who wanted to be, you know, a little more passive, but be involved. 
So I started doing some joint venture deals with investors and continue to scale. Next thing I knew, you know, I started in 2016, uh, late 2017, started doing some you know joint venture deals. Uh, come 2019, I had like 30 something partners. And all of a sudden, each deal is almost like its own little separate entity. And it got too overwhelming. And that's when I started to make that shift to now doing it in a Reg D 506C fund because it's, you know, it can have 30 investors, but they're all tied to that set of deals. So when I'm sending out financial reports, it's one financial report to 30 investors, not 30 financial reports to 30 <laughs> different investors. So, it, you know, from a scaling perspective, you can absolutely scale significantly larger once you get to that level, but it does take time, effort, energy, and consistency. That does give you a, a lot more efficiency only doing uh, one report to, to 30 investors rather than 30 reports to 30 investors. So that's going to save My you a My bookkeeper loves it too. <laughs> <laughs> Less billable hours for them though, but it's probably a pretty, pretty boring work, I suppose. Now, as far as scaling up, I mean, there's, there's probably a certain transition point in there where maybe in hindsight, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe in hindsight, you would have gone the fund route a little bit earlier. Do you think there's a, a certain point where it makes sense to go from assuming, you know, you're keeping it all, of course, uh, legal from a securities uh, regulation standpoint, but uh, going from, you know, is it, is it five, what's the number of properties, number of deals you need to do to have yeah. it make sense to go from individuals to a fund? Because yeah. funds have big fixed costs. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to is how confident are you that you can raise the money for the funds? And the first fund that I launched, it, you know, actually it's a unique story because six months before I launched it, I'd reached out to my attorney and said, Hey, can you start putting uh, documents together for Reg D? This at the time was a 506B actually, which uh, you know, is a fund that accepts accredited and some non-accredited investors, but you can't advertise for it. Is that because I've got enough investors already working with me that I want to get to that point of you know just moving away from JVs. And this was in like February or March timeframe, and I had them starting look doing that. And then come August, I get a list from a seller who I bought a lot from, and he says I need to sell this entire pool of assets. And you know the acquisition cost was uh, about eight hundred grand, and. I, with another individual who uh, worked with me on this, went out and raised 800 grand in a week, uh, nice. which it was, I, I did not think we could do it. And, <laughs> you know, we, we did it. And, you know, that was our first fund. And it's actually going to be closing uh, later this year. And the investors are you know, very pleased with the returns they're receiving. And since that time, now I'm on my fourth fund that I've started since that time. But yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to tell what that right answer is because it's two components. How, what's your reputation in the space and to, and also to raise money, but also what's your experience? And your experience level varies because if you're buying performing loans and which are loans that are paying, there, there's very little heavy lifting on those that you have to do. And same token, you don't get as much experience dealing with a lot of the complexities you do when it's non-performing and you have to deal with the attorneys. So when you do, you know, so it's difficult because when you buy a lot of non-performing, you just get these crazy stories that we could, I could talk a dog off a meat wagon with some of these crazy stories. <laughs> I've had, I've had foreclosures overturned on a verbal request by an attorney. I mean, it's unbelievable. Some of the stuff that can happen in the court systems. 
but it's getting to that level of really understanding and you're comfortable because the last thing you want to do is start raising money too early. Because when people raise money too early, I've seen it too many times happen where they get in trouble and then they disappear or they stop returning phone calls because they're in trouble. And then the investors, of course, get upset. And then you know it turns into legal issues or whatever it may be. Uh, for me, I would think an investor, if I was going to throw a dart at the wall, you know, I was at about 50 assets when I did my first 50 to 75 assets that I had under management and probably about half of them had come to fruition before I started uh, doing a fund. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So I, I would be remiss. I mean, I love in, in a maybe morbid way. I love horror stories, right? And I, I'd love to ask you for one that, you know, sticks out or if there's any like particular uh, horror story lesson that, uh, ha- horror story that has the best lesson that, you know, we can learn from uh, as folks that may be considering investing in uh, in the note strategy. Yeah. yeah. So a few things that I'll mention, it's not all rainbows and unicorns like people make it out to <laughs> sound like. You know, I've had deals that have been grand slams, uh, but they are far and few in between. You know, I like to, you know, I consider myself, I'm a, you know, I'm from the Boston area. So, I'm, you know, I'm, form, I'm a big Red Sox fan. So back in the day, you know, Wade Boggs, who used to win the batting title every year, uh, you know, he was a singles and double sitter, you know, and that's kind of what I look at, you know, but he, he bat, you know, 340 every year, you know, he lead, you know, in singles and doubles and so forth. That's what I like to do. I get my singles, doubles once in a while. You hit one for a home run, but you rarely strike out. One that I can recall this, and uh, I use a phrase a lot. People know me for Ohio stands for only headaches in Ohio, uh, the acronym. <laughs> and I had this one loan that was in Ohio. And one of the things challenges with note investing is you don't get to see the inside of these properties. So your whole analysis of the property is based on the outside. And I had a property that was in Ohio that outside, you know, three bedroom, two bath house, um, you know, kind of a front to back uh, ranch is what we call them here. You know, one single story had the front porch light on grass was mowed, looked looked decent shape, Uh, probably a value in the area. uh, I think we were at about 85,000 is what we had estimated with. The borrower's balance on the loan was uh, in the 30s at the time. So we paid, it was non-performing. So we paid about 50 cents on the dollar. So we paid somewhere called 18, you know, called 18,000 for this asset. I'm just using rough numbers. So come to find out, uh, the borrower actually was not living in the property, which we thought he was, because also there was a car parked in the driveway. He was renting the house across the street. And the reason why was he basement drain got clogged. And instead of calling Roto-Rooter, he did nothing. And basically, it backed up to the point of there was four feet of water in the basement. Oh, my God. It was up to the electric panel, but he still had the electric on. He had a extension cord running through this indoor <laughs> swimming pool upstairs into the house. He did not remove anything from the house. He had like six cats living in the house still. Oh, man. And then after several months, the amount of mold in this house was just phenomenal. I mean, it was pretty impressive, actually. So this, what we thought was $80,000 house was probably worth somewhere in the low 20s because of the amount of work, but was made it more. Uh, so we were trying to get the guy to give us what's called the deed in lieu, which is just sign the property over because he clearly didn't want it, but he wouldn't. He still wanted to somehow keep the property. And it's like, 
a why. So we knew we were going down this path. So we went to try and get the water out to try and protect the asset. So we go out there one day, for first after first two weeks, he wouldn't give us access. He, he verbally would say, yes, you can have access. But the day my the preservation company showed up, uh, he would say he's calling the cops if you step on the property again. So <laughs> exactly. It was, you know, why, why is this guy doing this? So we finally get permission. So we start pumping the water out of the basement. The guy next door lives at the water department. So he calls and they issue a violation, a citation, because they're saying we're pumping sewage water into the street. So he's like, you got to get a permit. So we're like, okay, you know, whatever, we'll go get a permit. So we go get a permit. And as part of the permit, there's a storm drain right in front of the property. And then there's another one 300 feet down. The permit says we can't pump it into the one in front. We have to run it all the way down the street. <laughs> okay. So we get the permit and we do that. So we're doing that. The guy who was retired from the water department comes out, calls his buddies. And they're like, no, you can't pump it down there. You, you know, so forth. We're like, where are you supposed to pump it? Oh, you're supposed to pump it here. And the one in front of the house. And like, here's our permit. The permit's wrong. So they shut us down again. You oh got to go God. get a new permit. And again, getting a permit takes, you know, we're, you know, we're weeks at end. And again, this house is just sitting with water and, you know, the mold just keeps growing and so forth. And there's no reason to remediate it while you still got four feet of water in the basement. So finally, we get the permit in front of the house, you know, in front of the house and so forth, finally pump it out. But this whole process was like a two month process. And it's so frustrating that you can't do anything. So then we're still going down this process. Then we're just, again, trying to get this guy to sign the deed in lieu. And he is fighting it. And then the county finally puts a condemn notice on the property because of they know of the water issues and all the mold in the house. So we actually had to get the city attorney involved to basically tell the guy, you're an idiot if you don't sign these documents. So he finally signs them uh, over to us. We get the property. I get a company to get in there and at least clean out the furniture, the carpets and rip everything out uh, and so forth before we even started the remediation. I had a remediation company go in and they're like, yeah, 30,000 bucks. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, basically it would have cost me about a hundred grand to renovate this thing. At the end of the day, it probably would have been worth 80. At the time, I'm already in it for like 30,000. But, you know, I don't know if you've ever dealt with mold remediation, but they just astronomically jack up the numbers. Yep. So the guy who, one of the guys who was doing the remediation says, you know, hey, would you be interested in selling this thing? So I ended up striking a deal with him where I sold it to him, owner financed it to him. So he he only had to put like 2000 bucks down. I carried the loan to let him renovate it for four months. So, you know, and carried the loan for him. And then after four months, he refinanced it, paid me off and went on our way. But I ended up losing probably like eight to 10 grand on the deal. But it was... It wasn't the eight to 10 grand. It was what this guy was just putting you through because you are completely at somebody's mercy. It's kind of similar in today's environment where if you have a tenant who's not paying and you can't evict them, it's you know almost very similar. I actually have many loans right now that we have borrowers on that they use the properties of rental properties. I got one in uh, New England. There's five buildings, 19 units secured by one loan. The guy's been collecting rent on it for years, hasn't paid a dime, not paying taxes, insurance, nothing on it. He's just cash flowing the rent. And there's absolutely nothing I can do because there's a moratorium in the state right now. 
that you can't foreclose on any single family residence, whether it's owner occupied, oh, occupied or anything. So we're just sitting, we've been sitting there waiting. And the worst part about it is every month, it's the 15th of the month, they extend it. And it drives the attorneys nuts because they can't scale. They don't announce it until the day of, oh, we're going to extend it again. It's not three weeks. Like, yeah, we're just, it's like, just extend it to June or July and just tell us. <laughs> Rip the band-aid. Wait. Yeah. So what's going to happen is next uh, Thursday, we're going to find out, like, do they extend it or not? And they're probably going to like, oh, we'll extend it again. And, you know, when I talk to attorneys, they get, again, ticked off because they're trying to scale manpower because a lot of them laid a lot of people off during COVID because there's nothing they can do. And they want to gear back up because we know it's coming, but it's it leaves them in a bind too. But that other story, that's probably, that is my worst. And that one was just, it was earlier on in my career too. So it was probably in the like the 20th note I bought. So I've got, I bought over 300 now uh, under my belt. So that one early on, just how you handle situations. Now, if it happened to me, it's just kind of just brushed it off and keep moving. Where back then I was a lot more uh, fired up about it. Wow. That's crazy. I'm, I'm so glad I asked that question and I'm, I'm glad you, uh, came through with a couple of, of, of great, but painful lessons for us right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Chris, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I am ready. Great. First one. What is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The systems I use. So as you go to scale, you know, there's certain systems you can use. They're expensive and they cost money. And that's one thing I see a lot of investors do is they try and do things that are, you know, to save some money. But I spent uh, $20,000 on software that specifically for note investing, it's the same software that these companies, these servicers use. So I can manage all these notes. And it also allows me to manage my funds within these instead of hiring a third party, you know, manager as well for, uh, I can do it all within the software. So it was extremely expensive, but it saves me on average, I'd say 40 plus hours a week. So when you think nice. of what your time is worth versus, you know, what the software costs, you know, it's super expensive, but it was well worth best investment uh, was investing in uh, proper systems to manage my business. Absolutely. Or the cost of another employee, since you're saying 40 hours, another full-time employee to manage all that stuff would be far more expensive than the cost of that software. We had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah. So the worst investment kind of similar, you know, tags along that was uh, investing in certain, uh, I say one-off startups. So some of these companies come out and try and create products that they have out there. One of it was actually a software startup that was came out and I invested about five grand into it first. And that's how I got to my best investment, actually. So I tried to work on that from that perspective. Again, it was I was probably being too cheap and I was trying to be too cute. So sometimes your, your worst investment is when you try and make things extremely complex. Keep things simple is what I tell people. Now I won't get into the deals because you know we all can share many deals or what may have happened on them. But um, for some strategic advice, uh, you know, I think your best investment is investing in you know systems that work, and worst investment is in investing in something that's new, untried, untested. Nice. My favorite question here at the end of the show yeah. is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Uh, the most important, your word is everything. You know, your word is everything. If you're going to tell somebody something, you do it. Uh, on some of these deals, uh, uh, you know, where I had JV Partners, that deal that we just talked about, I lost money. 
I had a JV partner on that. I made him whole. You know, I told him up front, hey, if we're losing, I'll take that out of my pocket. I've made people uh, whole in those deals. And I can tell you by just communicating with people and keeping your word. And even when it goes bad, you got to tell people the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. You'll be surprised how many times those people come back and reinvest with you. Even though it was a bad deal or you made them whole, you know, they realize the integrity that you have. And that's very difficult to find in today's world. Now, a lot of people are, you know, investing right now are probably doing well because, you know, the market's really pumped up and so forth. But when it goes to a snag again, which it's going to happen eventually, those people who stick to their word and, you know, look themselves in the mirror and uh, are honest with themselves, those are people who are going to, you know, rise to the top. Nice. Well, Chris, thank you for joining us today. It's been great to sit down, talk with you, learn about your note investing career so far, a couple of deals you've done, lessons you've learned along the way and starting your fund and all that great stuff. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn about you know funds you've got going on, if they're interested in you know potentially passive investing, whatever, where yep. can they track you down? Yeah. So my website is 70investments.com, but it's actually the number seven, then the letter E, then the word investments.com. So my contact information, everything is on there. If you want to learn a little bit more about note investing, I have the Good Deeds Note Investing Podcast as well. So people can listen and uh, check that out. And uh, also you can contact me through there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining in once again to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in, listening to us today, getting all this great information. It's fantastic. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. That, that helps other people learn about the show. It helps us rank higher in the Apple ecosystem and uh, all that important stuff helps us grow. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.